0: If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the New Testament. Our book this morning, our passage this morning is Matthew uh, chapter 26. If you're using the Pew Bible in in front of you, you can find it on page uh, 831. We're reading Matthew 26 verses 1 to 25. A few months ago, we read of how Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem on a Sunday, a Sunday uh, that we uh, kind of memorialize as Palm Sunday. You might not even remember that sermon, it was so long ago. Uh, We from then have been listening to Jesus' final sermon as he goes into the temple and he spoke numerous times uh, against those religious leaders who had rejected him. And then he left and in chapters 24 and 25 he spoke to his own disciples about his return. Uh, If you have a Bible with red print in it, there's a lot of red in those chapters We're about to begin an entirely different section, a final section, uh, in which Jesus will still speak. There's not nearly as much, hardly any actually, teaching. It's more a record as Matthew observes uh, these final few days of his uh, earthly ministry. Would you follow along with me as we pick up uh, after the completion of uh, the Olivet Discourse, that sermon in the last two chapters uh, on the next phase of his ministry? When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. And said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said to them, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and they were eating. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. The grass withers, the flower fades, the of our God will stand forever. should you pray with me? Our Lord, this morning we come in need of our Savior. We come in need of forgiveness. We come in need of grace and of mercy and of peace for our guilty and anxious and self-condemning hearts. And yet as we come, we are confronted with a passage where man fails Jesus. And we could spend this morning in recriminations about our own failures, about our own loose words this very day, of our own deceitful thoughts. I pray, O God, that you would spare us that misery, and instead you would show us your Son. You would show us King Jesus. You would show us the Son of Man. You would show us that one whose grace and mercy we so desperately need today. We would be reminded that though we fail and though everyone failed around him, he was victorious and he went to the cross and he rose from the grave that he might live and we might have life in him. Lord, as we read these somber passages, fill us with joy, knowing what our Lord has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. One of the most infamous villains in cartoon history is the Joker. If you grew up reading Batman like I did, you know who the Joker is. You knew him from comic books, you knew him from watching the Batman shows on TV. He was that guy with that weird, creepy grin, right? He always had that mischievous grin on his face. And he was always pro- causing problems for Batman. That Batman had to come and, and solve for everyone. The most recent version of the Batman movies shows us a, a very disturbed character, the Joker. And he is kind of famous in those movies for wrecking chaos and then saying with that weird grin of his, it's all part of the plan. He would destroy and he would name and he would kill. He was an agent of chaos and then say mischievously, it's all part of the plan, as if to say, there is no plan. The plan is utter chaos. As we turn the page in Matthew's Gospel, the initial read of chapters 26 and 27 feels a lot like chaos. It feels a lot like Jesus' life has spun out of his control and the agent of chaos is in charge. Jesus is no longer seemingly the one directing the action. He is now the recipient of what other people do. He is denied. He is betrayed. He is anointed. He is passive in all of this. We could read this thinking Jesus kept predicting stuff, and then all of a sudden, towards the end, he loses control of it all. And chaos and evil reigns, and the enemy says with that mischievous grin, it's all part of the plan, right? Right? What I want to show you this morning is it really is part of the plan. Everything that happens to Jesus on these pages is exactly part of the plan, but it's not the plan of the evil one. It's the plan of our good and gracious Heavenly Father. You see, we're going to see in these verses, everybody around Jesus has lots of plans, lots of things they want, lots of intentions, whether good or evil, about what's going to happen. And they get their way some of the time. But ultimately, it is God who is in charge of every step of the way. God is sovereign every step of the way to the cross. I want to show you that emphasis in the text this morning. We're going to take our main idea from a proverb. Proverb 19.21 says this. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I want to show you many plans in the mind of men and women in these verses, but every step of the way, every action a person takes, behind that stands the purpose of the Lord. And if we take man's plans on one side and God's purposes on the other side, God's purposes will stand. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Let's go through this. I have three different significant verbs, three actions taken by men or women, and in each of these, we're going to see what their plans were, they are going to see ultimately what God's purpose is for each of these steps. Number one, Jesus is delivered, it's our first verb, delivered unto death, verses one to five. Jesus is delivered unto death. What are the plans of man? We see in these verses that there is a plan. There has been a plan for many chapters now, and there continues to be a plan to arrest and kill Jesus. This isn't new as we're reading Matthew's Gospel. Jesus has, proverbially speaking, poked the bear one too many times, right? He has antagonized his enemies one too many times, and now it's time to finally kill him. But even as these leaders plot to kill Jesus, do you see how the chapter begins? It begins not with their plotting. It begins with some red letters. It begins with the, the words of Jesus. We begin seeing, oh, man has plots, but before man can even begin his plotting, God has something to say. Even in a chapter that seems to descend into chaos, God speaks first. We see in verse 2 that Jesus predicts what's going to come. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He has made this prediction three other times. This was way back in chapter 16, 17, I think it's 19 or 20. Three different times Jesus predicts his coming death, and the disciples never react well to it. All right, And every time he predicts it, it gets a little bit worse. He gives a, a little bit more detail. First, in chapter 16, he says he will suffer and be killed. The next time he predicts, the next chapter, it's not suffer, it's delivered and be killed. And the third time he predicts it, it's no longer be killed. It's now clearly stated he will be crucified. Every step he gets towards Jerusalem, the prediction becomes clearer and clearer, until we get to this, really a fourth prediction. And you see how it's even clearer? We now have a timetable set on it. The disciples could at least have been at ease those previous times, knowing whatever he's talking about is weeks or months or years away, right? But now he tells us, after two days, the Passover is coming, and that's when the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's a, we'll get to this next week when we look at that meal in depth, but that's Thursday night. That means this, he probably is saying this on Tuesday night, uh, as Matthew is sort of rearranging some of this material to lead us down the path towards the cross. Now what is man's plan itself? Jesus predicts it ahead of time, but what is their plan? Verse 3, the The priest and the elders gather together. They even now get the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas. So this is no longer now some sort of rural issue that the top dog can ignore, right, and let somebody else take care of it. Now this is the kind of the top issue, right? The crowds are coming to Jerusalem, and here's the presenting issue that we got to be ready for. They meet together. Verse 4 tells us they plot. That's a mischievous word right there, isn't it? I think it comes from Psalm 31, 13. We read here, For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. That's Psalm 31. We could have those same words here on the lips of Jesus. They plot to kill him, but there's one particular thing that they don't want to happen. And that's verse 5. But not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So what's going on in the Passover week? Tons of people are coming to Jerusalem, right? You know how in the fall you don't go downtown Asheville because there's so many tourists down there, right? That's what Jerusalem's like during the Passover. It's just full of people. Some estimates are that the city population grew five times just during the Passover week. And it's not just a bunch of people there. It's a bunch of people for religious reasons. They're coming to remember and commemorate the exodus. To celebrate the Passover meal that looks at how God's wrath passed over the people as they hid under the blood of the sacrificial lamb. With that comes from some of those people coming to Jerusalem some hope for a Messiah, some excitement for a Messiah. Some have described those days as like a tinderbox. You drop one match in there, and there is going to be, as they say, an uproar. So they're going to kill Jesus, but they're going to do it privately. They're going to do it quietly. They're going to do it when not too many people are around. They're just going to get him to kind of disappear, right, off to the side. That's, That's man's plans, right? But what's God's purpose in all of this? What's God's purpose in sending Jesus to Jerusalem? Well, it's for this very reason, isn't it? The very thing they think they're mischievously plotting and planning for, they're just fulfilling what God has already purposed from the beginning. And in fact, though they want to avoid an uproar happening amongst the people, though they don't want Him to be put to death during the feast, that's exactly when God has scheduled it. Their plan will fail. Because God has so ordained it that His Son will not only go to the cross on behalf of His people, He will go to the cross during that feast. In fact, He is Himself the Passover Lamb who sacrificed for the sin of the world. That all who come to Him hide under the blood of Jesus. Like that blood of the Lamb spread along the doorpost. You see, they're making plans about who delivers Jesus. That word deliver pops up numerous times in these last few pages, right? From uh, the disciples to the Jewish leaders, from the Jewish leaders to the Roman leaders, there's this sort of passing along, this delivering of Jesus, and sort of everybody has a hand in it, but who ultimately delivers Jesus? As we read from the lips of Peter in Acts chapter 2, he writes, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The delivering up of Jesus to the cross itself is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. All this plotting, all this scheming, all the secrets, all the hopes it'll happen according to their timetable, all of it is for naught because this is the Father's plan. This is God exercising his sovereign rule and control over the affairs of man, even over the death of his son itself. The very reason that Jesus has come to live is to die for his people. So as we read these verses, it's not like God is absolving every person in here. These leaders are still guilty. Judas is still guilty. Peter is still guilty. And on and on and on as everyone in turn fails Jesus. And yet, above it all, is the banner of the sovereignty of God. We don't read these verses pitying Jesus, who His plans fell apart and spiraled out of control. There's no chaos here. This is the divine, ordained, perfect plan of God, even delivering Jesus unto death. You see, God takes in these verses what man plans for evil, and he uses it for good. He uses it for the greatest good imaginable, the salvation of his own. But not all the plans in our section of Matthew are for evil. I want to show you secondly in these verses that Jesus is, though he's first delivered unto death, he's secondly anointed unto death. We see this in verses 16 to 23, this famous passage of the anointing of Jesus. All four of the gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell of an anointing. And they all tell it differently. So there's speculation. Was there one anointing? Were there four anointings? Were there two? And some told one and some told the other. Uh, I think there were two. I don't think that's really all that important, but I know there's a number of gospel authors that record this account emphasizing different details. So we're not going to go around and compare and contrast, we're just going to try to learn what did Matthew want us to know about this anointing of Jesus at Bethany. And we begin, like the first point, with man's plans or woman's plans. What were the plans of man when it came to this anointing, and then what are God's plans? purposes. Man's plan, this woman's plan to anoint Jesus was an extravagant act of love and devotion. That's her plan. Now you see the setting here, we're in uh, the house of Simon the leper, we're in Bethany. If you remember, Bethany is across the valley from Jerusalem. So Jesus is often staying at this house, Uh, Lazarus, I'm sorry, Simon, excuse me, Jesus is staying in this house. And he is daily, during this final week, sort of traveling down through the Kidron Valley, up into Jerusalem, teaching, ministering, and going back to the house in Bethany. It seems pretty likely that this event happened the Saturday night before Jesus enters Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Matthew has put it here to emphasize something particular for us but it lines up with the timeline from all of the other accounts in Scripture that Matthew is taking us to a previous scene to emphasize the intentions of this woman. You see what she does there in verse 7. A woman came up to him, to Jesus, with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Uh, If someone did this to me, I would think it was a prank, right? (laughs) Right? You're eating dinner, someone dumps a, bu- a bucket of oil on your head, right? Sounds pretty annoying. Uh, for Jesus, this is, of course, not that. Uh, it is a sign of honor. Uh, to respect this sort of um, uh, elevated rabbi that's come to the house to eat, She anoints his head with this very expensive oil as a, a way to honor him. Now, we don't know how expensive it is. It's, Matthew says this uh, very technical term, very expensive, right? So... Think of something expensive in your life and then double it, right? It's very expensive. I have no numbers for you. But it's a lot of money. It's so much money that those who see it happen, they're not happy about this, right? The disciples watching, Matthew tells us, are indignant. how dare she pour out all of that ointment on the head of Jesus? Couldn't that have been used to care for the poor? What a waste, Right? What a wasteful act on behalf of this woman. Jesus, of course, sees it differently. Jesus rebukes them in verse 10 and says, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done not a wasteful thing, but a beautiful thing to me. You'll always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. This is the only thing that Jesus describes recorded for us in Scripture as beautiful. The word can also be translated good. Here it is accurately translated beautiful. He sees something done. And everyone around him says, what a waste. And he says, what a a beautiful thing. This woman was displaying how much she loved Jesus. How devoted she was to Jesus. They use a corny line. You can't put a price tag on that, right? <laughs> For her, if she had more oil, she would have poured that out as well, right? This is a unique event in history. I mean, are we, how are we supposed to apply this, right? The next time Jesus is about to die and comes to our house the night before, what are we gonna do, right? But we can think through what, what is Jesus saying about the things that we value, What is he saying in this comment about how we we spend our money, right? Are we contrasting sort of on the one side something that's beautiful and the other side through the eyes of these disciples, they're seeing it just through whether it's useful or not. Or the the phrase utility, right? How how useful is something? They've done a quick cost-benefit analysis and they've said, oh, that's wasteful. Jesus, using an entirely different form of valuing and weighing what's happened, said, no, it's beautiful. How do do we take a principle out of this in our lives? How do we live with our money, our resources, our time as both an expression of valuing that which is useful and also valuing that which is beautiful? I mean, I know some of you are more inclined one way than the other, right? Some of you would lean more towards spending all the money in the world on what's beautiful. Some of you are penny pinchers. Are you going to save every single penny and only spend it on what's useful, right? How do we maintain this balance of valuing, as Jesus teaches us to value, both beauty and utility, what something is useful for? Well, I think in that balance, there's a ditch we can fall in on either side. One ditch we can fall in is just to neglect the poor. Say, well, Jesus values beauty. I'm going to spend all my money on that which is aesthetically pleasing and beautiful and good. And Who cares about the poor, right? I mean, this phrase, the poor you always have with you, doesn't that sort of take the wind out of your sails a little bit? Man, you're telling me no matter what I do, there's always going to be poor and needy people? You're telling me no matter how much I give, How much I try to serve, they're always going to be. You can see how that can lead to apathy, right? I mean, I'll be honest with you, right? We see stuff happening in in our city that we love with poor and needy people. And it can lead to apathy, can't it? I can't do anything about that. I can't fix that massive problem. You know, Jesus quoting here about always having the poor is not quoting a verse to excuse us from not serving. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. We read there, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, give up. That's not what it says. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Sacrificial love and care for the needy that are around us. It's not wrong to think, how can my resources be used in a useful way to help the needy around me? So we don't want to fall in the ditch of neglecting the poor. What about the other side? What about another ditch that we might be in danger of? And that's not neglecting the poor. That's neglecting that which is beautiful. Are we able to say with Jesus, are we able to look at, at acts of devotion and worship and say with him, that's not useful. That's beautiful. I mean, look, You've had uh, probably somebody make a gift to you and, and say they've donated a, something in your name to a ministry or something like that. It's a sweet thought, right? You get a letter. It's not a gift to you. A donation's been made in your name, right? That's kind of gives you the warm fuzzies, right? That's a nice, useful way to spend money. However, I don't think any young woman is hoping that her boyfriend will get down on a knee and propose to her with a donation made to a ministry, Right? <laughs> I was going to take that envelope and say, look, I didn't get a ring, but I got a donation made in my name, right? (laughs) Of course not. There is a place for beauty. There is a place for the people of God who care about stewarding our finances and our resources to care, as Jesus does, for expressions of beauty in worship and service of Him. One author Writes this, he says, those who are preoccupied with the oppressed and needy of the world often quarrel with any lavish expenditure of money for church architecture, pageantry, worship, or celebration. You hear what he's saying? He's saying there can be a mindset that is so preoccupied with the poor, who Jesus says will always be with us, that they always argue or quarrel with spending on architecture or pageantry or worship or celebration. He says there are times and places for extravagance. There's times and places to care for the worship of God through that which is good and that which is beautiful. So instead of asking, what ditch is your neighbor more likely to fall into? Oh, she spends too much money. Oh, he never spends enough, right? What ditch, are you more, what ditch are you more likely to fall into? Are you prioritizing beauty at the expense of caring for those around you? Or are you prioritizing usefulness and ignoring the cause of goodness and beauty that gives God the glory? What is so beautiful here? What is this beautiful thing you see the woman had a purpose she had a plan but what was God's purpose for this well God's purpose was beautiful in our eyes now it's to prepare Jesus for death how does she makes a, a show of her devotion to Jesus how does he interpret it he interprets it as preparing his body for burial It would have been common in the day to use ointment or oil uh, to prepare a body to be buried, to preserve it uh, and to prepare it. You know when that usually happened, though? After death, right? It's pretty morbid to prepare your body for death while you're still alive, right? Why would Jesus do that? I mean, it shows where his mind is. It shows where he's going. you know what also shows us is that while... Most everyone, rich or poor, in the ancient Near East was prepared for burial in this way. There was one category of people who often were not. And those were criminals. Jesus, even in this moment where He is honored in this extravagant gift, expresses and embraces the humility that is to come His way. He is worthy of of a very expensive outpouring of ointment, even though he is going to, in mere days, be put to death as a common criminal. What is God's purpose for this? His purpose is to exalt the humble, as he says over and over again. Jesus, in his humility, here is this moment of being exalted. This woman, in her humility, who is who is. Looked down upon by the disciples around her, who those who are troubling her, Jesus says what she's done is going to be told in memory of her wherever the gospel is preached, like right now. This prophecy is fulfilled this very moment as we speak of what this woman has done on behalf of Jesus. A disregarded woman is forever part of the gospel story because God brings down the proud and He exalts the humble. Or as Jesus says elsewhere, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. and That is beautiful. From this great act of beauty, we have to take a couple more minutes to turn to the ugliest act in the pages of Scripture. The last and final betrayal of Jesus. Verses 14 to 25, we see our third verb. Jesus is... Betrayed unto death. The word delivered is going to appear a few more times. The word denied is going to appear. But this word betrayed comes over and over and over again on these last few pages of Matthew's gospel. What are man's plans? Well, verse 14 shows us Judas's plan. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? His plan is to deliver Jesus or to put in clearer terms, betray Jesus. He's going to bring Jesus over to those who have planned to kill him. Now, if anything in these verses are not part of the plan, it sure sounds like this isn't part of the plan, right? It sounds like somebody is going and making a new plan. It sounds like someone is taking control of the plan out of the hands of Christ. Matthew calls it over and over again a betrayal. Why is it a betrayal? What's so bad about this? To turn your back on someone, to turn someone in, but just look at the particulars here. The, the, the price of this betrayal makes it so much worse. 30 pieces of silver, that doesn't mean all that much for us. That's a fulfillment of an Old Testament law and prophecy, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. But the law, the regulation is, if your slave... Or your servant, is gored to death by another man's ox. This doesn't happen to us regularly. It happened a lot back then, right? The law is, the owner of the ox pays 30 pieces of silver. So how much is Jesus' life worth? It's about the worth of a servant. That's to show us just how low he's become. The, if there were a most wanted sign with a reward for Jesus, it would be 20 bucks. His life is treated as practically worthless. What about how Judas betrayed the position he was in? We read further on they were sharing a meal together. Jesus, in sort of vague ways, uh, says one who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. He doesn't mean in that very moment whose hand's in the dish. The way they would eat a communal meal, all of them are just regularly eating, right, with their hands uh, out of this same dish. What he means is somebody who shares a meal with me, which in their culture is a friend. The Judas is betraying not a stranger, not an acquaintance. He's betraying a friend. And then worst of all, as Jesus describes what will happen to the one who betrays him, he says in verse 24, woe to that man, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He didn't just betray anybody. He didn't just betray a prince, right? Or a duke or an important person or a regular person or a peasant or a servant. He betrayed the Son of Man. He betrayed God Himself. And this is all coming from Judas who spent daily time with Jesus for years. There is a warning in here for every one of us. That warning is that proximity to Jesus does not equal faith in him. Or to put it another way, nearness does not equal dearness, right? We can be near to Jesus all day long, but if he is not dear to us, if we do not love him and believe in him and trust him, we are just like Judas. And I don't mean to overstate the case, but you can, if you can follow Jesus for three years nonstop and betray Him like this, you can certainly come to church for three years and not believe in Jesus and not trust Him for who He says that He is and not turn from sin and look to Christ and eventually you will go down the path of making your own plans and they won't include Him. Surely, in this final verb, betrayed, God does not have a purpose in man's plans, right? Look how his purpose, I want to show you, is worked out. The way it's worked out is that God is always in control. You know where this conversation happens with Judas? Exactly where Jesus plans for it to happen. We see in verses 18, he has planned exactly the place and the person and the time for this Passover meal. We'll get in next week when we get to the Lord's Supper, exactly the details of that meal. But it's enough to say now that Jesus has scheduled the appointment where this conversation will happen. He speaks in verse 24 of the Son of Man goes, as it is written of Him, who writes Scripture, God. God has predicted this from way long ago before it even popped into Judas's mind to betray Jesus. And what stands out the most to me is that Jesus allows Judas to carry out the plan. I mean, they're sitting there around the meal. Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? I mean, what, what audacity to ask him that, right? He says, you have said so. Just kind of a weird, uh, kind of a, a vague response. Maybe the other disciples wouldn't get it, but Judas certainly got it. You know what Jesus could have said right then instead of the time out? All right, hey guys, can you just hold Judas for the next couple days? He's about to do something really bad I'm going to go free. They would have helped and he would have gotten out. Instead, in God's plan, in God's purpose, Jesus is not only delivered, he's not only anointed, he's actually betrayed by a friend that shared the table with him. Have you ever wondered why betrayal is part of the account? I mean, if he's in charge, he's moving the pieces around. He could have just walked up to Pontius Pilate and said, "Here I am." He didn't need to be betrayed. I think the betrayal does a number of things. I think it shows us his his humiliation on a level that maybe some of us can resonate with, but a lot of us can't. How deeply he is humbled by his death and betrayal. I do think it shows us that Jesus can sympathize with us. That when we're let down by those around us, when we're the object of gossip, right? When we're the object of slander, when there are whisperings about us, Jesus can sympathize with us. He's been there. But ultimately, I think it's to show that this is all part of the plan, and the plan is that Jesus dies for sinners and Jesus alone. And as we go through on the way to the cross, people keep getting removed. and We're whittling it down. It's not Jesus and the twelve. No, one of them's gone now. Peter's going to have his problems. The Jewish leaders are going to abandon him. The Roman leaders are going to see injustice and just let it happen. slowly, everyone else is going to be whittled away until it's just Jesus to show us that it is him and him alone that saves. There's no one else. There's nothing else. He had no help. There was no one there to stand by him. It's all part of the plan. We would be excused for reading these verses for the first time and thinking it's chaos. This is the work of a joker, right? Is it really part of the plan that Jesus is delivered unto plotting men? That can't really be it, right? Does he really say he's going to get anointed a week before he dies? Right? How macabre is that? That can't be part of the plan. Uh, surely betrayal isn't part of God's plan. And Matthew tells us every step of the way, it's all part of the plan. But why? Why would God deliver unto death, and anoint unto death, and betray unto death Jesus? Well, the answer is the gospel. The answer is the gospel, that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That This is the giving of that Son. This is the expression of the love of God for sinners like you and me. We read every step of the plan. We read every depth of humiliation. We read all of the depths to which Jesus goes to to save sinners. And what should jump off these pages is not poor Jesus. It's not out of control Jesus. It's not how bad am I like these people on these pages. What jumps out to us is the love of God. The love of a father who would send his son every step of the way down. Do you doubt God's love for you? Then just read of what he sent his son to do. This is the account, this is the expression of your father's love for you, even a sinner like you. Man makes the plans, but God has a purpose to save sinners by the death and resurrection of his son. So put down your plans, trust his purposes. Believe in Jesus Christ today and forevermore. Let's pray. Our Lord, as we struggle to know and understand and believe Your love for sinners like us, for unrighteous men and women that don't deserve a drop of Your grace and Your mercy, show us these steps of Jesus. Show us this expression of Your love that we would not doubt but rejoice. We would not wallow in guilt and self-recrimination, but we would indeed be filled with peace and with joy and with hope. Lord, as You show us Jesus more and more, cause us to repent, believe upon Him, and know the great promises of salvation. In His name we pray these things. Amen.